it's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. Hello, everyone. I'm Terrence McCauley. Welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes, right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My guest today is Bill Rapp. He is a veteran diplomat and government official with over 35 years of experience in the federal government. His latest book, A Turkish Triangle, is available now from Coffeetown Press. Bill, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. Why don't you tell us a little bit about The Turkish Triangle? Well, the Turkish Triangle is the fifth book in our Cold War spy series that I've been working on for several years now. And it's um, set in Turkey, uh, mm -hmm. as the, the title would suggest, and uh, but, it, but it's during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the protagonist, Carl Beyer, who is the same protagonist throughout this series, the CIA officer, uh, whose family fled uh, the, the Nazis in uh, back in the, uh, the, the mid-30s. He settled outside Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, and Carl uh, initially was with the military intelligence after the end of the first uh, Second World War. He was sent to Berlin right afterwards as part of Operation Paperclip, which was the program designed to identify and recruit the German scientific elite and mm -hmm. industrial elite as well. Uh, and that started him off in the, the, the world of intelligence. And he joined the agency when it first was established in 1947. And right. his adventures take him through primarily Cold War Europe, uh, Germany, Vienna, Hungary, uh, and the uh, Portugal, uh, the UK. This particular story, uh, he's sent to uh, Turkey because the agency has just lost three Soviet assets. They were been assassinated. He's been asked to investigate and get to the bottom of that. And he discovers that it's simply the tip of an iceberg. Uh, and the iceberg being the uh, Soviet uh, espionage operation, which is attempt, uh, an attempt to undermine the U.S. position, uh, not only in the Middle East uh, and the Caribbean during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but also more broadly in Europe as well. Right. And so he has to combat that. And, and um, you know, I'll leave the rest of the readers who may uh, want to pick the story up. Uh, right. So. Well, it's fascinating because that you, you picked such an interesting time in the not only the nation's history, but also the history of intelligence in the United States, there was a lot of intrigue going on in the world at that time, wasn't there? Yeah, quite a bit. I mean, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis itself, uh, trying to discover what the Soviets were up to, what they had actually installed in Cuba, and uh, whereabouts in Cuba it was. And so you had all sorts of uh, different forms of intelligence. We had overt imagery, we had human intelligence, which alerted us that there were uh, missiles being installed. And then we mm -hmm. had the you know, the U-2 flights and whatnot. Uh, and then there was uh, obviously very intense diplomatic efforts underway. And we came remarkably close to uh, an outbreak of nuclear war. Uh, people don't realize it, but it was the uh, Soviet submarine uh, nuclear uh, with nuclear weapons on board uh, came very close to launching a missile at a Navy, U.S. Navy ship during the blockade. And uh, mm -hmm. it was only when the the commander on board the sub hesitated, and uh, we were able to communicate with him that when there was no uh, genetic in intent involved in, in our operation there, that he held off. Uh, 
and I, right. I rely on that episode in the book as well as to uh, as a, a turning point in some people's attitudes uh, towards the crisis. But yeah, it's right. uh, um, the story's progressed through the Cold War, you know, up through. Uh, I mean, he gets involved when during the um, in Bud the Budapest Escape, for example, in um, the uh, Hungarian Revolt, the Soviet invasion. He gets mm -hmm. involved. He's back in Berlin and Berlin Walls when the walls going up. And I might add that uh, my wife and I were stationed there uh, in Berlin when the wall went down. Oh, and, really? Yeah, it was. And I had started my life, as I tell people, as an academic historian of modern Europe. So uh, before I joined the, the agency, and so to uh, to be there for such a seminal event in German European world history, and to be directly in right in the middle of it was a fascinating experience for me. Right. Yeah, I would imagine it was. And then I remember I was in school at the time, but I still remember to this day how historic everything felt as the wall came down. Yeah. Yeah. And then in, within 11 months or 10 months, uh, Germany was reunified. And mm -hmm. uh, I was uh, working very closely with the, the U.S. Um, minister at mis the mission that we had established in West Berlin and uh, attended a lot of meetings with him, the Germans, the Berlin authorities. And it was uh, fascinating to see how that uh, unfolded and how so rapidly it evolved. Uh, tremendous time to be there. Yeah, I remember, you know, I, I had an interest in, I was a geek. Uh, some kids played sports. I, I followed politics. Uh, I wasn't a Michael Keaton type, but uh, like from uh, family ties, but I definitely tracked it, a lot of that mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. Don't ask me why. My parents weren't political, but I, I just enjoyed the process of it. And I remember them saying that, oh, it'll be about 10 years before they figure all of this stuff out. And it was, as you just said, closer to 10 months. And, yeah. uh, you know, people don't realize that when the wall finally got, had a few openings in it, people only came through it one way that time. And they came west. They didn't uh, barrel through it and go towards the east of the oppression regime over there. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, and I was, I remember that evening how uh, overwhelmed the West was. In fact, that entire weekend trying to handle the flood of visitors uh, from the east, you know, and it was, they were welcome, uh, but it really taxed uh, the, the transportation system and the stores and whatnot. So people were, were more than happy to, to oblige. Um, I should add, you know, on, on, on the Turkish Triangle, I, we can say out loud now that I'm retired that I, I spent about over 35, close to 42 years working for the CIA. And right. um, the uh, spent a lot of time working for Turkish teams. I spent a lot of time in Turkey. Never signed there, but I spent a lot of visited there often. Mm -hmm. And um, the I became fascinated with that country and its political culture and its history. And I was I worked, as I do in all these books, try and weave a lot of that information and that knowledge into the story without, you know, burdening it with just too much data and, and too many facts and, and aggressions. So it's, um, right. so drawing on all that experience was made writing this particular book a lot of fun for me. Yeah, I can imagine it did because it was, uh, you know, it, it's funny that I've done some research recently into JFK's presidency and that, the, the global events of that era. And for a while there, the Cold War wasn't so cold, especially when mm. you had conflicts in Korea that yeah. were directly between the United States and communism. And then you also had uh, Vietnam, which was another uh, yeah. outbreak of war between the United States and communism. 
So, you know, the Cold War, I guess you could say, really, for when I've looked at it, happened after Vietnam was over and, and America withdrew. But it was uh, it was a pretty hot war there for a while. Yeah, Not it, nuclear, it, but hot. Yeah, at least it was lukewarm. At least, right. And, and uh, his next adventure, I've just finished working on that manuscript. That's Carl Beyer, sent on a special assignment to Saigon. Uh, mm. It's in 1964. It's getting ready to Americanize the war. Figured that um, sooner or later uh, he would have to put in his time in Vietnam. It's something really hard to avoid because at the time of Vietnam, that was our largest deployment uh, ever overseas. Right. I know when I, I volunteered to go to Iraq, the thought was, well, you know, we all got to do our part here, whatever you think of the policy. And so I'm sure there was a similar attitude in 1964 in the agency so that he felt he had to go at some point and do his part. And of course, he gets right. involved in things he never planned on once he's there. Sure, sure. Yeah. And that was, uh, yeah, that, that also too, that lead up to the buildup of, of our full commitment in Vietnam was also mm -hmm. another fascinating part of it. And also too, a lot is made of, of JFK and RFK seniors' uh, statements about wanting to break the CIA up into a million pieces. But then you also see a lot of the stuff that's been revealed lately about what their true intents were behind the scenes, where they wanted the CIA to do what they wanted it to do, and they hadn't given up the um, anti-Castro mission. They mm. just wanted to have a better control of it, especially after Bay of Pigs and the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, he um, uh, RFK remained the main driver on those Castro uh, plannings and, and operations. He was the he was a real force behind that. Uh, yeah. Kennedy did, um, well, particularly after Bay of Pigs, he was uh, he had some concerns, uh, and it was interesting because uh, he took the covert operations program away from the agency and gave it to the Pentagon early on in the war. So he wasn't satisfied with what the CIA was doing. And the CIA claimed that they said, look, what you want to do isn't possible. You know, it's it's not just not going to work. And they found that out when the military tried to run it as well. Um, right. The whole history of the agency in Vietnam, I did a lot of background reading for the new book. And it was it's kind of interesting. And some of the academic studies that have gotten a hold of the CIA uh, documents um, a better, more positive story of the agency's role in terms of trying to keep administrations uh, better informed as to what we were getting into over there and what the challenges were and right. how feckless a lot of our policies would be. Um, and I was stunned to read in one academic study by a, is that the Professor Lodgeville, I think Lodgegill, it's Frederick Lodgegill, Swedish-American, um, that McCone, who was the CIA director in 1965, resigned because LBJ stopped reading our stuff. He, too negative in his view, right? So, um, he sort of cut us out of the uh, the Vietnam pro, at least the the analytic support process. Right. Yeah. And it's it's you know the more that people are starting to learn about that rich history of the agency, the, I think and I hope that people will stop looking at it as a bunch of uh, overeducated yahoos who just want to go in and destabilize governments for the yeah. sake of it because of their funding it's it was a love them or not admire them or not they didn't do things just for the sake of doing it they did it with a greater goal in mind even if you don't like that goal and there's a lot to be said for and against it they weren't reactionaries they they were they were really intelligent people who had a plan and had a view 
and were doing what they could to enforce it on American policy, weren't they? Yeah, I think um, what people that want to talk about, you know, the rogue elephant, all the sort of thing, and, and uh, you know, agency pursuing its own foreign policy, you don't realize that there are very uh, strong restrictions placed on the agency and what it could do or not do. Um, mm -hmm. And everything that we do is at the behest of the executive branch. And um, in the legislative branch, it's kept well informed. I know I was involved uh, in a number of uh, programs, covert operations, and um, we always, we had to testify everything in, on the Hill, you know, and, and we had to get all sorts of things signed off uh, uh, at the White House and executive branch of the government. So it's um, not like you see a bunch of yahoos running around looking for the next adventure. Um, right. Just doesn't work that way. Yeah, I know. It, it's funny. And it's also one of the things, because I've written thrillers as well. And a lot of the times, some of the harshest criticism is because, well, the government wouldn't let this happen, or the other agencies wouldn't allow the one I created in my mind to, to flourish. And, you know, I've, I've seen that the biggest problems is the myth of the hyper-prepared government, you know, because yeah. people had this feeling that there were people working on stuff and they've got a plan for everything, but that's just not the case. Things do happen uh, because of various factors that happen in any event. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I guess you're talking about the university. My the university institute. series. Yeah, that you created. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things I try and do in these books, too, is to put it in that sort of a more realistic uh, political and policy context to show that uh, what is the environment in which the agency folks are operating and, and what are the challenges they face and what kind of people do this work, you know, and the training they have. Obviously, we're still obligated to entertain. You still want people to have an enjoyable read. So, Sure. You, know, you, you dress things up, play with them a little bit, um, uh, but it's, I try and create a, a, a more authentic and plausible environment for these uh, CIA operations that uh, Carl Beyer, the, the protagonist, gets involved in and what he has to do and the kind of support he has or doesn't have from the government. Um, and uh, at the same time, try and make it, you know, entertaining for the reader. Sure, yeah, because you're not writing a textbook, you're not writing a history exactly. of the CIA, uh, it, and there were certain things that the audience expects to find in it, and, um, you know, it, it, the, you know, I've done it in my own work where I, I overemphasize the technology and what the computers can do and, and different devices they have yeah. to make what they do sexier, but no matter what era you're writing in, whether it's a modern-day thriller or something like you're doing with a historical piece, uh, it, it, it all boils down to the human qualifications and the human interaction with each other that yields the yeah. most results. And ultimately, that story has to have something that you can relate to. And yeah. th those are the characters we create, but as you said, to dress it up and make it sexy. Yeah, I think um, uh, an old former colleague uh, who has uh, works uh, consulting in, in uh, L.A. and Hollywood, he he said the his big he thinks the big failing that a lot of books on espionage have is that the, the characters just aren't realistic. And uh, right. the, um, and I, I think he has a good point. And and that so that's another thing. That's why I emphasize sort of the human dimension of these people like Carl Byer and the other people he works with, as well as the antagonists, the people he goes up against. Everybody. Mm -hmm. And every issue has a history. And, uh, you know, right. the other side is doing what they do for a reason. And uh, you try and bring that out as well. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why the Lacare books were always such a big hit because they're very dense. They were almost impenetrable if you look at them and, and you read them as a whole because of his, his incredible understanding of, of how that world worked. But it was always about the people. I mean, yeah. that's why yeah. there wasn't an awful lot of explosions. There wasn't an awful lot of, of um, intrigue and action. But but what was there was, A, beautifully written. If you take almost any page yeah. at random in any of his books and read it, it's so beautifully done. But it was it was so realistic because these were real people that you could imagine seeing every day or or seeing in the stores. And and that's what that world is really like. It's not a world of James Bonds. It's really a world of everything. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I have issues with some of what Lockeray did, but I, I agree with, wholeheartedly with your points that you have one, you have his just beautiful prose. You could tell this is a guy who really labors over every sentence, labored, I yes. say, over every sentence. Um, and the people involved and the, the characters he draws and what uh, things that are driving them to, to, to do what they do and act as they do, I think that comes across very, very well. Um, even if I have issues, I'm going to read all his books, you know, because of there's a lot to get out of them. You know? Of course there is, yeah. And uh, the, another favorite of mine is Len Dayton, who is, I, I don't think people gave him enough credit for being able to tell an awesome story, have it riveting, and also have a very human element to it, especially his game set match books those yeah, were just yeah. absolutely i mean and the, the way he was able to get humor in there dry british humor but humor nonetheless is it is, is, is was was fascinating um would having read both of them would you compare yourself closer to one or the other in, in terms of your storytelling or uh is there anybody else who's influenced your fiction writing that's a good that's a good question i think i would refer instead to charles mccary an oh American right writer. he um uh, and, and a former agency officer at some point and and i always was really motivated by his stuff maybe it was because many of his spy stories early ones occur in post-war germany and uh right. his, uh main character you know grow up in germany's educated there uh and writes german poetry sort of a similar to the i guess the medievalist of uh, george smiley um, mm -hmm. But yeah, McCary was, um, I think, as he differences between American and British prose, I think the American prose is a little lighter and, mm -hmm. in my mind, more readable. And I think yes. that comes across in Charles McCary's books. And um, he also does a great job in terms of his, his characters and how they're, they're influenced by their backgrounds and what makes them do what they do and the stories as they unfold. I, I'd go with him, although I certainly wouldn't... Uh, uh, Want to express any kind of disdain for someone like Len Dayton? I, I think that his, I would agree. The the first trilogy he has set in Berlin uh, is a masterpiece or masterpieces. And now I have a collection of spy fiction, and I, I try and trim it down every once in a while because the books are you know piled up and falling off the shelves. But mm -hmm. that's that's a set I will keep, uh, you know, as long as I'm around. So. Right, right. Yeah, I like to refer to it every once in a while as well. And Charles McCary, you're absolutely right. He, he also plays with history a little bit, but his books are so informative. And when he makes his spin on it, like he did with the uh, JFK assassination. And Tears and of Autumn. Yeah. It was, yeah, Tears of Autumn, yes. And, and how it was the, uh, the Vietnamese who did it, 
you know, most people, if you read the back of the book, you'd say, yeah, no, that's crazy. Everybody knows it was somebody else. But um, the way he laid out that plan and that plot, it, it was perfectly plausible and made quite yeah. a bit of sense. Uh, sure. And he took the time to do that. He didn't just run at the, uh, at the hook, if you will, of the story. Mm-hmm. He actually spent a lot of time setting it up. And I think that's something that thriller writers could use uh, a little bit more of when crafting their story. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it really helps if they they do that. Where do you um, now? You I know that you enjoy setting your your tales in a certain time period. What was it about that period in general, outside of uh, the intelligence game, that you enjoy writing about? Do you do do you continue to do a lot of research about how life was back then, so you can create a more rich setting for your audience? How do you go about uh, writing a history piece? Because Ultimately, that's what this is. Yeah, um, the uh, there's a number of reasons for that. One is uh, a very practical one, was that is by setting the stories far enough back, I wouldn't have any problems, and I haven't yet, getting stories through the Publications Review Board. Mm-hmm. The secrecy agreement I signed when I joined the agency still applies after I've retired. It applies till the day you die. Right. Uh, so I have to submit everything to the Publications Review Board. And because these stories are dated, don't have to worry about exposing any sort of methods or operations or personnel, uh, personalities mm-hmm. that are involved today. So that's one practical uh, reason. But the other one was, I, I have to confess, I sort of stumbled into it. I um, I wrote the first book in the series, Tears of Innocence, with a previous publisher, now out of business, Five Star. Uh, know about them. Oh, right. Yes, I do. Yeah, unfortunately, they published a lot of good stuff. Yeah, so I am, uh, and then I, I, I'd written a, a follow-on, uh, and I just said to my wife, you know, we, we spent a lot of time in Berlin, it meant a lot of time for us, our second daughter was born there, mm. Said, and I spent a lot of time going through Berlin as an academic and, as well, and I said, you know, I really wanted to set a story in post-war Berlin right after the war, you know, and mm. she sort of helped me with some ideas on that, and then I thought, well, I want to write a follow-up book, that'll be it with this guy, and he's in Vienna. Because I always wanted to capture some of that the world that disappeared with the the collapse of the, the empire, Eastern Empire, it's in 1990. Right. Things right. that uh, like what Anderson captured in the Grand Budapest Hotel. And I right. thought, yeah. So I thought, you know, so I wrote this story, and then um, what's their face? Uh, Five Star said, "Well, we're not doing mysteries and thrillers anymore. We're only doing frontier fiction and western fiction." And I thought, oh, geez, what do I do now? But they included an attachment, an email attachment, with a list of publishers who might be willing to take on new authors. So I liked though, the website for Coffee Town. I contacted them, and they said, yeah, sure, we'll take a look at your manuscript. They got back to me, and they said, are you thinking of a series here? And I said, well, I wasn't, but a lot of, you know, there was a lot of Cold War stories. We can continue this right through, you know, with other Cold War events that provide a good backdrop uh, for a right. espionage story. They said, yeah, because we want to offer you a contract for more than one book. And I said, okay, you got a series. You know, and right. that's, and so that's how I started. And I just started marching through the period. And as, because of my background as a historian, which I, I, I stopped being a professional story when I left the, the teaching profession, I had taught mm-hmm. at Vanderbilt and Iowa State before I went to the agency. Um, but I, I retained a love for history. And um, I was familiar with the period, <clears throat> excuse me, and I do enjoy, you know, just reading all these history books as background to refresh my mind and my memory as to what went on and to delve in to get a more uh, precise setting uh, for the stories. 
But that's right. really how I, I came to it. I sort of backed into it, but it's been a, a leisure, a labor of love, really, uh, because of my going backgrounds as a historian and intelligence officer. Right. You were able to marry your love of history and your experience and put them together into uh, something that's quite dynamic. Would you say that your books are, and that, I know you write in a series, but would you say your books can be read as each one as a standalone or does it help if everybody has started from book one and proceeded all the way through the rest of the series? Well, I, I think it helps because the major to start at the first one because that's where a lot of the characters are introduced. But mm -hmm. you know, as you're as you're well aware, I'm sure you know the publishers always want to make sure that each book you write has a standalone appeal as well. Right. And the fact that they're each setting is different with a different um, uh, historical background, historical events such as the Hungarian Revolt or the building of the Berlin Wall allows uh, allows me to create a, a story that stands alone on you know within its own historical context with its own uh, integral issues that are different from the one before. So you, I think you can read each one separately. Right, yeah, well, that's what's important. I mean, it's it's good to know all of that uh, in advance. What is next for you right now? Uh, what are you working on and, and what can people expect from you in the future? Well, I, the, the next book that um, I'm working on, I hope to get to the publisher. I promised it to the publisher before the end of the year. Uh, is the one uh, it's tentatively titled Assignment in Saigon. It's where he goes to Vietnam. Okay. Uh, and that's, I don't know, maybe next spring. I, I, we used to put things out in November before Christmas time, but I think it's better to do it in the spring. Um, so I'm hoping to have that available by next next spring or summer. And then after that, I'm not sure, you know, the, the next big event in my mind is the uh, Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia following the Prague right. Spring in 68. So I, that could be the next one if if um, I still have the, the contract with this publisher, but they seem happy to, to keep, you know, publishing new book for me. And then I thought, I'm yeah. not sure, you know, you mentioned earlier the, the, the Korean War, and I just right. skipped over that when I, I wrote the second and third books. Um, maybe it might be time to sort of step back uh, as uh, or, or work something in along those lines, because I, I remember uh, that's one of the things that I admired in uh, Philip Kerr's Bernie Gunther uh, series, um, The Berlin Private Detective. Um, right. He did a lot of uh, time travel, but his stories do back in time to give you the background to a particular thing he's working on a, at, a, at any given moment. And uh, so maybe after Vietnam, there's it's a, a way to get him involved with something that draws back on uh, some experiences he may have had during the Korean War. Right, yeah, because there's an forward. awful lot that happened there in the Korean War that really helps, the, you know, oh, helps yeah. propel uh, a lot of what happened for the rest of that decade and a lot of what yeah. happened for the rest of that century. And, uh, yeah. you know, it was, it, you never know. It's, and a lot hasn't been written about it. I think, uh, you know, there's some history books, but you haven't seen a lot of fiction set there. So that might be, uh, might be something for your readers to look forward to. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, the readings I've done in Vietnam, the, our experience in, in the Korean War, particularly when the Chinese invaded, uh, right. was uh, a really heavy set of baggage for the policymakers. That, that they restricted themselves a lot of what they wanted to do and how they went about it because they were afraid that they would provoke another Chinese invasion, you know, that we'd have to deal with China again. And, uh, right. So there was a real concern there. There really was. Now, how can people follow you and continue to uh, watch your progression through your career on social media, your website. As, yeah. uh, how can people see you? 
I've got a website. It's uh, BillRapsBooks.com. Bill Raps Books, all one word. Uh, mm -hmm. That's my website. Um, I also have a Facebook Facebook page. Now, there's a Bill Raps Books Facebook page, but I prefer, I find it's more productive just to go with my straightforward Facebook page, Bill Rapp. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that's where I'll put a lot of announcements about uh, signings, events, uh, mystery writer conferences that I'm, I'll be attending and whatnot. So I think... Um, that's one way to do it. I've got uh, right now, I've got a couple of Christmas markets that I signed up for. I find those really rewarding. Uh, okay. People come to buy Christmas. If they're looking for something for their, you know, partner, husband's boyfriend, brother, sister, or whatever, you know, uh, yeah. an assigned book by a, a an author seems to be make a lot of sense. Got another Christmas signings in uh, Ohio uh, bookstore there. So I, I've got those coming up. Um, okay. And I'll just continue to 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 look for other opportunities, you know, and other bookstores to work with, and um, uh, other engagements like this, uh, you know, to to talk about writing with people. Sure, sure, fantastic. Well, we, we thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. I think our audience has definitely found another uh, novelist and another series that will keep them entertained for hours on end. Thank you for doing this. Well, thank you. Thank you. I certainly hope so. Thank you for the invitation. This was uh, a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. And thank you, my audience, for tuning in for yet another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We'll see you next time, everyone. Take care. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.